all the women and all the children be handed over. Puny King, let's call him, agreed to the demands. In fact, witnesses recall Puny King saying, as you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, all that I have. Well, the second message was brought to Puny King, demanding silver, gold, women, and children once again. This time, not so Puny King made it clear that the next day he would arrive to take all that pleased him and all that pleased his servants. Puny King, slightly distraught at the latest threat, went to his friends and asked him, what should I do? His friends told him he shouldn't do it. Well, Puny King sent word to Not-So-Puny King, saying they had changed their minds. We're not sure at this point how many people Not-So-Puny King sent over to take Puny King City, but it was sufficient. However, Puny King was without a plan, didn't have any means of how to attack or how to defend, but he was met with a visitor telling him to get all the teenagers not a bad idea, and everybody in the country to go and attack Not-So-Puny King and his army. They scrounged up a whopping 7,232 soldiers. But to Puny King's surprise, they actually chased off Not-So-Puny King's army. Well, you can imagine, now rife with embarrassment and a mostly battered ego, Not-So-Puny King was convinced that if they had fought on flat land, if we had the war on flat land and not in the hills, he would have won. So he vouched to Puny King that he would be back to take them once over, once more in the spring. And this time, he was going to make sure they fought on flat land for some reason. Spring arrives and Puny King is mustering up his army. Well, not so Puny King has made provisions for his army to succeed. The Bible describes it like this. The people of Israel, puny king, those are my words, encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians, not so puny king, filled the country. Filled the country. I'm not sure how many people are in two little flocks of goats, but it sure sounds cute (laughs) and cuddly. And I can only assume they were in for the fight of their lives. There are battles. There are battles of far greater importance than any fight or war that was ever waged by man. It is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. It has its hand-to-hand conflicts. It has its wounds. It has its fatigues. It has its sieges and assaults. It has its victories and defeats. It has its little flocks of goats. But above all, it has its consequences, which are awful and tremendous. Christianity, saints, is a fight. Christianity is a fight. The true Christian is called to be a soldier and must act accordingly from the day of conversion unto the day of death. We are not meant to live a life of ease and comfort. This fight for the Christian is with the world, the flesh, And the devil, these are our never-dying enemies. Unless we get victory over these three, all other victories are useless and vain. We must fight the flesh. 
Even after we confess Christ to be Lord and Savior, we carry within us a nature prone to evil and a heart weak and a heart unstable. We must fight the world. The subtle influence of that mighty enemy must be daily resisted. Okay? Without that daily battle, it can never be overcome. It's the love of the world's good things, but it's the fear of the world's blame and laughter. All right? It's the secret desire to keep in step with the world. It's the secret wish to do as others in the world do. All these are spiritual foes which hassle us continually on our way to heaven, and they must be conquered. And we must fight the devil. That old enemy of mankind is not dead. The Christian warfare is no light matter. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. Let us not think that in this war we can remain neutral and sit still. Such action may be possible in the strife of nation, but it's utterly, utterly impossible in the conflict which concerns the soul. A policy of non-interference, or how about the skillful work of inactivity, right? Which detains so many of us, or the plan of keeping quiet and leaving things alone. This will never do in Christian warfare. It is a fight of universal necessity. There's no rank, no class, no age that is exempt or can escape the battle. Ministers, people, preachers, hearers, old, young, high, low, rich, poor, gentle, simple, kings, subjects, landlords, tenants, learned, unlearned, all alike must carry arms and go to war. It is a fight of perpetual necessity. Let me tell you, our enemy affords no breathing room and no truce. On weekdays, Sundays, private, public, home with the family, abroad, in little things like controlling our tongue and our temper, as well as in the great things like the government of kingdoms, the Christian's warfare must unceasingly go on. Consider Paul. We read the text to Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy here in chapter 6. Paul was five times scourged by the Jews, three times by the Romans. He suffered shipwreck four times. He was in perils of robbers, in perils of his own countrymen, in perils by the unbelievers, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, and all the while engaged in what? The unpopular business of turning the whole world upside down. The testimony of what stands today for the church is no result of pacifism. In the great triumphs of faith, God has used human instruments such as Paul, to be instruments of battle. It is impossible to be a soldier for Jesus Christ and not fight. You listening right now have your battles, right? You have to contend with sin. You have to contend with slothfulness and inertia. You have, and I know very well, a mighty battle on your hands against doubt. You have a mighty battle against despair. You have to contend with the instruction and godliness in your home and your marriage. And do you not have to contend with the obedience to the Lord of Lords? Yes, you do. Do not think it's strange, brothers and sisters, if you fall into temptation. The Christian life is a fight, after all. And we are assured a mighty conflict in this world. We are assured a spot among two little flocks of goats, encircled by a sea of enemies. The fight will cross over the threshold into the church, too. 
The church is now in a deadly period of conflict. The enemy conceals his most dangerous assaults under pious phrases and half-truths. The adversary has a very deceptive sound, does he not? Let us advance Christianity, the adversary says. But let us not be engaged in arguing or defending it. Let us make our preaching positive. Let's not be negative. Let us avoid controversy. Let us hold to a person and not to dogma. Let us sink the ships of small doctrinal differences and seek unity in the church. Let us drop asserting the Bible as the only authority for life and godliness. And why don't we just interpret Christ for ourselves? Let us look for our knowledge of Christ in our hearts. Right? Let us not impose Western creeds on the Eastern mind. Let us be tolerant of opposing views. These are falsehoods. These falsehoods are heard from the lips of good Christian people. They have the slightest inkling of what they mean. They have no idea. They have no idea they're in a fight. But their true meaning is becoming increasingly clear. Increasingly, it is becoming necessary for us to decide whether we are going to stand or not to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ as he, as he is presented to us in the word of God. Not in our hearts. Not what we think feels right. If you decide to stand for Christ, you will not have an easy life. We are charged in our mission with the imperatives to flee that which is evil, to pursue, to fight, to take hold. We read this scripture. Of course, one option and one not sanctioned by God's word is to evade. You might all well speak of me after I proclaim this message from the pulpit. But I am only a mere hypocrite if I cast a vote to water down the word of God after the doors are locked and the lights are shut off. A simple hypocrite. Have I not chosen to evade at that point? I'm permitted to believe in supernatural Christianity all I want. Oh, yeah, the Red Sea. Absolutely. That was parted. It crossed right through there. Creation, six days, no problem. Yeah, the Lord made the sun stand still in Joshua's time for day. God can do all these things. But then if I'm confronted by it and I back down, I say, well, you know, it's in the Bible, but, you know, there's some interpretation there. We can't really say. Those are the actions that will win favor of the church today. <clears throat> you may believe what you want, provided that you do not believe anything too strongly, strongly enough to risk your life on it or fight for it. That's what they would have you believe. Tolerance is the great word. We even ask for tolerance when we look to God in prayer. How can any Christian possibly pray such a prayer as that? What a terrible prayer that is. And full of disloyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense, of course, in which tolerance is a virtue. I ask you to consider restraint if targeted by personal attacks. 
or what about patience and understanding in the midst of correcting error amongst the brethren? Yes, tolerance could be rightly applied here in these situations. But remember, we are not commanded to tolerate that which violates the word of God. But to pray for tolerance apart from such qualifications, in particular to pray for tolerance without scriptural adherence, is just to pray for the breakdown of Christianity. For Christianity is what? Intolerant to the core. Christianity is intolerant to the core. There lies the whole offense of the cross. Right? Sheep, goats, in, out, heaven, hell. That's the whole power of the cross. The gospel would have always been received with favor by the world if it had been presented merely as, a, as one way to salvation. The offense came because it is the only way. And because it has made relentless war upon all other ways. God save us then from this tolerance of which we hear so much. God deliver us from the sin of agreeing with those who deny or ignore the laws of God. God save us from the deadly guilt of consenting to the presence in the church of those who lead Christians astray. God, make us faithful messengers who present without fear or favor of men, not our word, but the word of God. It is written, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. We have passions and desires, though, that maintain the exact opposite of overcoming. We default to human reasoning. We default to say, oh, this is impossible. And they will do whatever they want. Don't walk all over me. Romans 6, 11, 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. To fight the good fight of the faith means that we stand firmly anchored in the word and the power of the spirit, making ourselves dead to our feelings, making ourselves dead to our human reasoning, not letting sin rule in our mortal body by obeying its lusts. We have to do what Jesus says, take up our cross daily and deny ourselves. Deny yourselves. That is how you fight. Deny yourself. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This does not happen without a fight and sufferings. Peter says it like this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 1 Peter 4.1 Therefore we must suffer in the flesh if we are to cease from sin. Can't put it any other way. Many people do not want to acknowledge this fight and this suffering. It is not uncommon for Christians to use their abilities and persuasion to present the Christian life as being easy and as glorious as possible. They explain how Jesus has done everything. And as a result, we don't have to do anything. They say Jesus has suffered for us. He died for us. He has redeemed us completely. We must only believe in his finished work, and then we will automatically live an overcoming life. Uh-uh. Some of that's true, but it's not automatic. Sovereignty wars against 
well, inactivity, right? We can take sovereignty too far and say it's automatic. It's not automatic. It's not what Scripture says. They can proclaim full liberty in Christ in spite of seeing the people they serve continue to live in all kinds of sin and in spite of the fact that they themselves do not have any victory. They live in the love of money, envy, fornication. They have come into false liberty and turn grace into licentiousness. It's Jude 4. They continue to endure the sound doctrine because they have turned their ears away from the truth and have turned aside to myths. That's 2 Timothy 2-4. through 4. This happens. This happens in our churches. Fight the good fight is, to, is a call to action then. Those who want to be faithful to the truth know that living and overcoming life in the virtues of Christ is not something that comes automatically. Therefore, the scriptures speak of a narrow way. Right? Wide is the path to destruction. Scriptures speak about the cross, self-denial, suffering, death. The scriptures are full of serious exhortations, not to be taken lightly. Scriptures use such words as work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. Strive to enter through the narrow door, Luke 13.24. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers, 1 Timothy 4.16. Rather, train yourselves for godliness, 1 Timothy 4.7. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, etc., 2 Peter 1.5. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 2 Peter 1.10. I could go on. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit precisely that we should have the power to fight the good fight of the faith. If you journaled, any of you, and I opened your journals, probably not a lot of you do, I would be surprised to see words like work out, Strive, keep, persist, train, make an effort, be diligent, flee from that which is evil, pursue, fight, take hold. We have much work to do, dear brothers and sisters. Faith. Faith. In light of this radical call to arms, faith seems like a buzzkill. Right? You're going to stand up there and tell me, Dave, that I'm supposed to go to war and it's faith? That's what I'm supposed to do? I have this conviction to act and take dominion for Christ and the remedy is faith? Faith in the truth of God's written word is the primary foundation of the Christian soldier. We find conviction today amongst unbelievers and even Christians alike don't subscribe to the word of God or any doctrine or dogma. And it's a thing which many are, are fond of talking about. It sounds fine at first. It looks very pretty. But the moment we sit down and examine it and consider it, we find it is a simple impossibility. We might as well talk of a body without bones and muscles. As for true Christians, faith is the very backbone of our call to arms. You would never rise from the couch to fight earnestly against this world, the flesh, and the devil unless you had engraven on your heart certain great principles of which you believe. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work, and his office is the life and the heart and the breath of the Christian. 
Habitual faith in Christ's presence is the secret of the Christian soldier fighting successfully. He that has the most faith will always be the happiest. He that has the most faith will always be the happiest. He that has the most faith will always be the most comfortable. And content, may I add. Nothing makes the anxieties of warfare appear more dimly as the assurance of Christ's love and continual protection. Let me say that again. Nothing makes the anxieties of warfare appear more dimly than the assurance of Christ's love and his continual protection. We can look at the uh, early church history. We can look at modern, the modern persecuted church. We see how Christians held fast to Christ even unto death and were not shaken by the fiercest persecutions of heathen emperors. Fines, prisons, torture, fire, sword, all unable to crush the spirit of this noble army. The whole power of Imperial Rome, the whole power of Imperial Rome, unable to stamp out Christianity. That's a, that's a lot of power. Which began with what? A few fishermen from Palestine? And then let us remember that believing in an unseen Jesus was and is the church's strength. They won their victory by faith. Faith has penned the stories of these gallant soldiers for Christ, standing firm, working out, striving, keeping, persisting, training, making an effort, being diligent, fleeing from that which is evil, pursuing, taking, fighting, thrusting the sword of God's infallible and errant word against any and every foe. What battles they have fought. What controversies they have maintained. What opposition they have endured what tenacity they have exhibited against the world in arms. And then let us remember that believing in an unseen Jesus was and is the secret to their strength. They overcame by faith. But you, but you, have you ever maintained any such battle for integrity and truth, for the soul or for God? Assuredly, if you are true followers of Jesus Christ, you will find plenty of enemies to contend with. Enemies that are ready to take advantage of every opportunity and who are not to be overcome without a long and resolute battle. These battles can go on a long time. You shall find these enemies within yourselves. And the first part of every man's battle is to overcome and master these. I do not much value a fight, which is chiefly to get the better of the other people. And I don't believe there is much good fighting that we can embark upon until we have first conquered ourselves. The battle begins, therefore, in your own heart and life. It is good to know that there are some. It's good to know that there are some that are far more interested in their neighbor's danger than they are of their own. And so long as they are of that mind, they will never fight to any purpose the fight to which we are talking about this morning. The nearest enemies are those that are the first to be dealt with, and there is no victory for us until these are overcome. There are doubts perhaps perplexing your mind and chilling your faith this morning. You must fight your way into clearness. You must fight your way into clearness. There are lusts and appetites of the flesh which perhaps assail you, you must fight your way into clearness. You're to contend with them, to beat them into subjection. For 
for otherwise they will grow until they are gratified and they will bind you in the bondage of shame. It's the only way it can go. It's the only way it can go. If you have a bad marriage, it'll end in shame. If you have an addiction, it'll end in shame. That bondage is real. And there is still more loss of the mind, envy, pride, malice, hatred, uncharitableness, revenge. And we must do battle against these and slay them. For if we let them live, they will soon leave no life in us at all. We'll just be that pile of skin and flesh with no muscles and no bone and no backbone. And then there's the love of the world and the things of the world. We must set ourselves to deny and resist that. How many heartless souls can you think of that have succumbed to the allurements of the world? It's depressing. They'll never strike one blow or win one victory in this good fight because their hands have been weakened and their arms have been blunted by the world. But our warfare is not just confined to inward wrestles. Our battlefield is also the world. We may not stand neutral in any righteous cause. Right? There's a lot going outside these four walls right now. What about ignorance? Is there ignorance among us? Yeah? Are we breeding its poison? Can we help in any way to remove this ignorance? How about injustice? There's injustice. Can we be arresting it? Yeah? Yeah? Then it will not do for you and me to stand by and say it is no concern of ours. This is called a good fight. Paul says it's a good fight, and surely with good reason. Sometimes we are content with saying, well, that was a good fight. And all we really mean is, that yeah, was a nice effort. Woo! We praise the combatants simply because they did their part. But here the phrase good fight has far deeper meaning. This is a good fight whether we do our part or not. It's the cause that makes it good. It's Christ that makes this fight good. How many of the world's wars can lay claim to that statement? And we do all this by persuasion, by pity, by tender sympathy, by bearing each other's burdens, by being the church, by speaking the truth and love to one another, by meek and patient suffering for righteousness' sake, by faithful example, by brotherly kindness and charity. So with good weapons, the good fight is to be fought. Not with wrangling, not with bitterness, not with malice and cunning, not with persecution or hatred. Right? Think not to gain the victory here by ways or forces which Christ never used. A Christian has to do battle for faith, once delivered to the saints, he has to retain it for himself, he has to hand it down to his children, and he has to maintain it for the world. There is nothing for us then but to fight on in faith. And if we do not, if we choose our own way and not Christ, does not our past experience tell us that that way leads to sorrow and destruction? It certainly does. It certainly does. When was it that you last fell before Satan? Think about it. When did you fall before Satan? And what happened? Perhaps you were brought to shame. When was it that you, your efforts to do good and 
to others proved barren and fruitless. Was it not then that you were full of what? Self-confidence, selfishness, and you had lost your faith in God at that point. On the other hand, when were your victories won? When did you make any progress in godliness? Was it not then when you put your trust in Christ and did his will and left him to reveal it all in his own good time? Faith is taking your spot amongst the two small flocks of goats. The Syrian army had mustered up quite a few, numerous enough to cover the entire country. Israel had mustered up two little flocks of goats. The world is a great battlefield. There are two armies. They are disproportionate in numbers, always will be. The one is large, united, armed, disciplined, and determined. The other is small, sometimes trembling. The one is armed with every conceivable weapon. The other has but one. The one is disciplined and determined. The other is simple and feeble. In Satan's army, every conceivable weapon is authorized. Line, misrepresentation, the forging of books, corruptions of human writings, the base and unholy trickery of false miracles are all resorted to. Not such are the principles upon which Christians are called to fight. To us, it is not permitted to act, but according to the will and the word of God. Every soldier, though, in that little army, every single one in that flock of goats is unconquerable. Unconquerable. They cannot fall. You get that? Unconquerable. <laughs> To what then must we attribute this remarkable success? Not to their numbers, they are few. Not to their wisdom, it's foolishness. Not to their strength, they are weak. It is Christ who commands them. He is the cause of this incessant victory against their overwhelming odds. The first army is commanded indeed by a mighty prince, Satan. But before Christ, he is nothing. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel, two tiny flocks of goats, struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 40 people? 100? Flocks of goats aren't that big. Not little flocks. And then the rest of the Syrians fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 who were left. A wall fell down, taking out the rest of them. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. I admit, Lord, that it just, it's easy to tremble 
before you in these matters. It is difficult to even imagine what we are to do, what you want from us, Lord. It just, I confess, it takes a lot out of me to think about these things. The gravity of the situation, the fight that we're called to fight, it can seem over, it, it just seems too big, Lord, sometimes. I just pray, Lord, that you strengthen us with these words, that you, with your word of God, that you would make us mindful to be acting in the war that you set us to. Help us, Lord, I pray in your name. Amen.